1: a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kinda like the high five, but if you wanna hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW for reporting or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: The Crusades loom large in contemporary popular consciousness, however, our public understanding has largely been informed from a Western perspective, despite the fact that there is a rich textual tradition recording its history in Muslim sources. Paul Cobb remedies this problem in The Race for Paradise An Islamic History of the Crusades by presenting the fullest and most readable account of the Crusades relying on Islamic sources. Cobb expands on the geographical and chronological boundaries of the Crusades by placing traditional conflicts within Muslim accounts of Frankish aggression. In general, medieval Muslims were not overly concerned with Europeans, and ongoing relationships between Christians and Muslims only really existed in the Mediterranean context. European expansion into Muslim lands throughout the Middle Ages marked a different phase of encounter, but were not always clearly demarcated by religious boundaries. Cobb illustrates the often-competing logic behind political alliances, military aggression and intervention, or discursive justification. The Race for Paradise does a wonderful job of presenting the narrative in a new light and dissolving many of the assumptions about pre-modern conflicts that have been produced by one-sided accounts of the Crusades. In our conversation, we discuss the Frankish conquests, the significance of Jerusalem, Mediterranean Muslim communities, Arabic sources... Notions of Jihad, Frankish rule in the Levant, Saladin and his political heirs, thinking about the Crusades today, and a very interesting conversation about making an audiobook. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Without further ado, here's my conversation
1: with Paul Cobb.
0: Welcome, Paul. Thanks for joining us here on New Books in Islamic
1: Studies. Thank you, Christian. I'm very, uh, very happy to be here to uh, talk about my work and to uh, share some ideas with you.
0: Yeah, now this this book, The Race for Paradise in Islamic History of the Crusades, is it's a unique work. It's it's very well written, uh, uh, very readable, which is important for these kind of narrative histories. But before we get into the book itself, um, it's our tradition here to to find out a little bit more about the authors. So could you tell us a little bit about – your background, perhaps important influences or mentors you've had uh, in your training and what brought you to Islamic studies?
1: Um, Sure, I'd be be happy to. Well, this will have to dig deep. Uh, Let's see. Um, (laughs) That's good. I was um, an anthropology major originally as an undergraduate at uh, UMass Amherst, uh, which is the town where I grew up. Um, So I grew up in a college town. So the the academic lifestyle was known to me and uh, ironically uh, was seen as attractive to me. <laughs> um, little did I know. And uh, so as an anthropologist uh, anthropology major, I was also a, a classics um, minor um, so took some Greek and Latin and but I had the sort of you know typical undergraduate hubris that I thought I would somehow combine anthropology with uh, classical studies in some way. And, I, uh, you know, uh, I realized very quickly that, you know, hundreds of people had done this before me. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it was, uh, it was an intriguing mix. Uh, I, I liked uh, languages, and I really loved anthropology and the idea of studying culture, the capital C, and other cultures, so I found very um, healthy and intellectually nourishing. But it was – I was not actually originally interested in the Middle East, but it was – at UMass, in the anthropology program, it was not required, but it was encouraged um, that students sort of try out some of the various disciplinary wings of anthropology, like linguistics uh, or cultural anthropology or what have you, um, and uh, including archaeology. And I remember – sort of thinking that I might be on an archaeological dig. So I, I looked around at all the various bulletin boards, like actual bulletin boards. You remember those? <laughs> yeah. um, for ads, uh, uh, asking for volunteers for archaeological digs. And uh, the ones that happened to be advertised, uh, this was in the, uh, in the 80s, were uh, either in, uh, the, 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 I should say that made use of my interest in the classics. Uh, were Roman or Byzantine sites in the Near East, in either Israel or Jordan. Um, so I thought, well, uh, I should probably take some Arabic. And that was, it was uh, studying, studying Arabic that I think was the primary vector for uh, me catching this uh, bug. And then finally going o- uh, on an archaeological dig in Jordan in 1987, I think, summer of 87. That was my first trip to the Middle East, first time I visited the region and was able to, you know, not really use the language much after a couple of years of Arabic, but, you know, to to try and to make friends and to travel around a bit. And that really opened my eyes, I would say, to um, the Middle East as a real place, as opposed to this kind of exotic, uh, fantastical place. Um, This was also, you know, the Reagan years, when there was a lot of, particularly given events in Libya at the time, there was a lot of sort of, Racist stuff being thrown about in American popular discourse about Arabs in the Middle East. And, um, I was sort of energized by this visit in '87 to, um, I was a, almost kind of, you know, missionary fervor to sort of spread the word that, you know, the Middle East is full of real people with, uh, real needs and real, uh, and, and real perspectives on life. Uh, I went back on the same dig. Uh, a a subsequent season in 89 and um, when I uh, applied for graduate schools I actually thought I might continue to be doing um, archaeology or anthropology um, but specifically in the Middle East and um, I didn't. I I wound up going to grad school at the University of Chicago and fell under the wing of some uh, historians who sort of uh, took advantage of my love of languages and um, rather than working on Byzantium or, or Rome in the Middle East, um, I really got interested in Islamic history and um, Islamic um, sort of uh, literary production, Islamic studies, and Arabic literature. And um, I've been there ever since.
0: Now, Paul, you've written a lot, and uh, it's primarily focused on the medieval period. This, this project itself, can you talk a little bit about how – uh, this began to emerge as a book and kind of where it's situated within your um, broader research trajectory?
1: Sure. Um, it's a bit odd, actually, if, if you consider it um, in my um, sort of, if you take all my books together and line them up, um, a lot, people either know me as, a, as someone who's, who, if they know my work at all, they know it. They, they know me as someone who's worked on the Crusades or they know me as someone who works who's worked on, let's say, the early Islamic period, um, the rise of Islam, the early caliphates. Um, there are, uh, I, I sort of, it almost looks, if you were to put it on paper, almost looks like, like I had some sort of midlife crisis and, uh, <laughs> and and fled early Islam. I suppose I did, um, in a way. I had a sort of historiographical, uh, not crisis really, but a, 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 a historiographical. Um, Change of heart. I started out um, at Chicago working with Fred Donner on early Islamic history, and that was a very uh, nourishing and exciting, um, intellectually exciting time for me, um, learning about the vagaries of early Islamic historiography and what we can and cannot know from our sources, um, the uh, complexities of early Islamic law and uh, the relationship of the Islamic world to its neighbors. and that's, that's sort of what I thought I was going to be working on, actually. It was maybe Byzantine-Muslim relations in Syria, in you know, the balaad sham the greater Syrian zone of the eastern Mediterranean. But, in fact, um, I wound up um, working on a slightly later period, on the Abbasid period, so uh, comparatively journalistic from what I was originally interested in, you know, the ninth century as opposed to the 7th um where there were much more abundant sources, but above all, um this um local history by a medieval Syrian historian named Ibn al-Sakir, who wrote this famous biographical dictionary, not really a, a chronicle, uh called the Tariq Medini Dimesh. Uh, um and that is a vast encyclopedia of data, of information, and of stories about medieval Damascus and medieval Syria. From the time of Adam until the time of Ibn Asakir, who wrote in the uh, 12th century, and it had always been a favorite book of, uh, of Donner's, and uh, I know he was one of the first people to really mine it in some of his own work. So um, when I was looking through it, I was looking for material dating from uh, dating from the uh, Umayyad and Abbasid period. And um, what I found is there was tons of material, and especially um, tons of material from lost sources from the Abbasid period. Syria is always associated, of course, in Islamic history with the Umayyads, uh, because their capital was uh, for for so long in Damascus. And as a result, they turn up a lot in a lot of the local chronicles, like Ibn al So it wasn't surprising to me to find a lot of Umayyad material. But, you know, the old, the old um, um, picture of Islamic history is that um, after the Umayyads um, moved on, after they were, they were kicked out in the Abbasid Revolution, um, uh, so-called of 750, uh, Syria stopped to be a, uh, an important place. And I found that intriguing because there was so much material that, um, uh, that suggested there was some importance to Syria even after the Umayyads left in works like Ibn al so I decided to give up on the Byzantines altogether and, uh, and to write about what happened to Syria after the Umayyads left, what, what would happen if you kept the camera rolling in Syria after 750, and what did it look like? And that became my dissertation, which became my, um, eventually my first book, uh, White Banners, which was about the sort of political shenanigans of Syrians who had been used to, be, to occupying the center of the Islamic world and were now reduced to being mere provincials. Um, And that was, I would say, my first um, grappling with the idea of perspective. And I found that to be very um, eye-opening for me because, um, you know, as you know, Christian, uh, uh, the way we study Islamic history and the way even that it is still taught in, in, in academia today is based largely on one perspective on one narrative, which is that of, uh, a Tabari Um, and that's, a, an Iraqi centered, um, Sunni centered, um, idea of a kind of sacred history of, um, how God has intervened in the lives, um, of good Muslims. And in that narrative, Syria has a brief flash of importance in the Umayyads and then not so much. Um, And I wanted to sort of uh, experiment with ways of breaking up that narrative. And so working in Syria uh, was one of those. And I've sort of been in and out of Syria ever since. Uh, That tends to be my geographical focus, um, almost on on everything that I do. Um, After, uh, you know, I I got my first job, my first tenure track job anyway, was uh, at Wake Forest University in North Carolina, um, which was a very uh, congenial, congenial place. Um, but there were not a lot of other, uh, fellow travelers there. Um, and, uh, the, the opportunity came up for me to move to Notre Dame and, um, I was there for almost a decade and it was, you know, sort of in the, um, uh, in the ballpark of Chicago. So it was nice to be in my old, uh, stomping grounds. But what I was confronted with at uh, Notre Dame was the Crusades, which I had never really studied before, to be perfectly honest. Um, I think I had read uh, one book. There's a, a sort of pretty well-known textbook um, uh, by uh, Meyer um, that one reads. And I think that was the only only thing I'd read on the Crusades, except for some encyclopedia articles as a kid uh, up to that point. But uh, Notre Dame is uh, famously a Catholic institution, and they have a superb um, uh, medieval institute and medieval studies program. And being, being at that time— and the Islam guy, (laughs) you know, the, the only Islamic historian or Middle East historian, um, that's no longer the case now, but back then it was, um, they were keen to have me say something intelligent about the Crusades, but never having really studied the Crusades, I sort of, um, um, pushed off the, um, invitations and, uh, and, uh, you know, the, the pressure to come up with a say, of course, on the Crusades, um, but eventually I came around because, and it was, again, through literature and through language, um, I had read um, Philip Hitti's translation of um, Osama ibn al um so-called memoirs um, uh, known as the Kitab al-Hittibar, but which, um, I've forgotten the exact title of Hitti's translation, but, you know, it's uh, the famous one. It's called, like, Memoirs of an Arab-Syrian gentlemen from the time of the Crusades, or something like that, and uh, had read some, of, had, had tried to read some of the Arabic as an undergrad, but uh, but couldn't. Um, so I thought, well, this would be, you know, a, a good opportunity with a great support system of eminent medievalists um, and a superb research library to maybe have another go at uh, at Osama. And it was actually not through the Crusades per se, but through the Osama, uh, a Muslim who just happened to be contemporary to the Crusades and his literary world that I got interested in, in um, Crusader history. Um, so I um, uh, t- I worked up a course uh, on the Crusade, which incorporated not just the usual stuff from Usama, but also from some other Muslim sources. And I began reading Usama um, in earnest and was eventually asked, um, since I was kind of obsessed with them at the time, By Patricia Crona to do a little biography of him for her her series um, uh, on makers of the Muslim world. Um, uh, Do you know that series? Yeah, Um, it's uh, it's uh, it's a lovely series. They're um, the books are as as always in our field too expensive, but uh, they're (laughs) great little short little readable um, introductions to the life of um, uh, of Muslims who might be prominent, or might not be. It's, uh, I, I love the oddball uh, selection in that, in that series. And I think Usama is an oddball selection, too, for many reasons. But um, uh, he also, I think, has a good story to tell about his age to, uh, to modern readers. And one of the things I, I um, wanted to get across in that book, that biography of, of, of Usama, is that for all that we today, moderns, and in particular in the West, associate Osama with his memoirs because, you know, there are excerpts from his memoirs translated in practically every reader of medieval history, every textbook somehow mentions him. Um, he was actually better known as a poet and as a man of letters, as an adib of, uh, in his day. So I wanted to, to kind of redress the balance there. Not to, In fact, I had originally planned never to mention the Crusades at all in, in the book, until I get yelled at by, um, uh, Patricia on that. Um, and had just was just going to focus on his literary career. Um, and, um, so, I, I, but I did want to stress his, uh, his other literary pursuits, um, and, um, his interesting and adventure filled, uh, sort of uh, life story. So, uh, it, it, and it helped that a lot of his literary profile had only come to light after, um, say, in, over the course of the 20th century. So a lot of manuscripts uh, and a lot of um, uh, even books that, that hadn't been associated with him before uh, had come to light. So I think we have a better sense of him as a, as a literateur than we, than, we than we used to. So it was kind of a timely uh, um, uh, opportunity for me to, to write such a thing. And it was also my first opportunity to write something that wasn't for, like, other professors you know, <laughs> yeah, um, uh, and I found that very. Uh, I found it freeing and uh, liberating to be free of the the uh, free of the footnote, um, and I very much enjoyed the exercise. It was a brief one because they're brief books, um, but I, um, I I enjoyed the challenge of taking what the sort of complicated thoughts that I'm used to having and used to just putting on paper. To kind of reducing them, not reducing them, but to distilling them to um, to uh, a readable life story of another human being, and that that uh, was educational for me, not just about writing, but also about Osama. You know, I think I learned a lot about him in trying to trying to relate him to my imaginary audience of learned non-specialists. You know, um, so that was um, a very positive. Experience. It was also in the course of that book um, that I realized that Hitti's translation was awful, (laughs) Um, and I had to. If you go, if you look through the that biography, um, it is Hitti's English translation that I cite. It was the only one around at the time. But it was then that I realized um, uh, Osama was too interesting a person to be um, kind of just left with that one. Um, translation uh, written in the 1920s. So I um, set about um, doing a new one, uh, which I did for Penguin Classics um, not long after. And um, that came out just after I left Notre Dame um, and when I arrived here at Penn. Um, the, uh, the The trick with the translation was, well, in a way it... Brought me back to um, my interest in language and, and literature, but also combined some of the things that I, had, I that I had learned in graduate school as a as a historian too. So it was kind of a nice mix of things. I um, was an idiot, really, when I thought about uh, when I thought about <laughs> translation before actually taking this on. I mean, you know, in the course of your graduate education, you, you do a little translation, but you know, sitting down to do um, a, a long, uh, complicated text by a very crafty literature like Osama um, was it was not for the faint of heart. Also it's also um, you know it starts in media race you know there, it starts in the middle in the middle of things with uh, you know there's some, some missing pages at the beginning, so there's no context. It's a unique manuscript. Um, so there are no other readings to ha- that you can make. And um, uh, um, the work did not circulate, so even people's opinion, medieval people's opinions about it don't uh, uh, don't circulate. So um, it was a it was a challenging challenging text to to translate, and I don't think it's a, a perfect translation, but I am uh, uh, proud of it, I guess, um, if only because um, I think I conveyed something of. Osama's um, craftiness as a, as a writer. Um, And it's interesting. I I have come to think that um, translators of Osama translations of Osama sometimes take on the persona of their translator. Um, So Hitti's translation of Osama makes him sound like a genteel Lebanese man from the, you know, late 19th and early 20th century, you know, (laughs) with some sort of fake, Medievalisms kind of tacked on to the translation. It's full of these and thous and archaic um, um, uh, terminology sort of cherry-picked from random, like from Sir Walter Scott and, you know, random sort of uh, medieval or faux-medieval texts to make it sound medieval. Um, but I think in that respect, Hitti made the absolute wrong choice because, if anything, Osama was known to his contemporaries as... A shockingly contemporary person, a writer, you know, chatty, and even slangy in, in some cases. You know, he uses this this way of writing in Middle Arabic that, that is not the very fancy formal Arabic, not always anyway, that uh, you might imagine, but also um, very uh, colloquial in some ways. And so, I wanted to do, sort of convey that in the in the text um, to sort of make it a. Um, a, a contemporary um, and lively text, rather than a fossil. Um, plus, you know, our world had changed. Uh, you know, the, the world of academia had changed so much. Our knowledge of Islam's world had grown so much since um, Hitti's time that I just felt that um, you know there was more to add in terms of critical apparatus. You know, our knowledge of uh, the details of his life and you know how to translate things, but also how to the, the sort of footnotes that kind of accrue around a text like that. Um, and I threw in some extra bits um, from some of the um, uh, other um, autobiographical statements that Osama had made in some of his other literary works. So that he wasn't just the guy who wrote those memoirs, but also um, a, a wide-ranging author in his own right. Um, so that, in a long, that's a long answer to your question, but that's <laughs> how ultimately that got me into writing A History of the Crusades from the Islamic perspective, because by the time I had translated this, uh, translated Osama for um, for Penguin, I was sick to death of Osama. <laughs> um, and I was almost resentful of him intellectually that he had come to dominate the study of that, the study of the phenomenon of the Crusades from the Muslim point of view, that there had to be more than Osama to this story. And that's what got me gathering more sources um, Uh, And attempting to write a um, a kind of a narrative for um, a general audience. Um, So, yeah. uh, So,
0: Paul, um, maybe you, since this is basically a narrative history that you go into great detail about, uh, you know, the whole Near East and North Africa and Mediterranean area, um, it might it might not uh, be super interesting to narrate that completely. So maybe you could talk a little bit about um, the writing of the Crusades, the scholarship of the Crusades uh, prior to, to your work um, and a little bit about what what motivated you to, to then kind of fill this gap and, and perhaps what, what were kind of the, the main goals for, for the way you wrote this book, the audience you were kind of imagining as you wrote it and what, what you were up to.
1: Sure, I think that's. happy to do so. That's that's uh, a process I go through every uh, at the beginning of every um, large project, and I encourage everyone to do the same, which is to think of the the, the gains and losses. Like, what are, what is to be gained by writing this book and writing it in this particular way, and what do we lose from it? Um, and in this case, um, I knew that um, the Islamic sources had more to tell about um, the history of the Crusades than you were getting from, let's say, your standard textbooks or even your standard academic histories of the Crusades. There's always been, I think, goodwill on the part of Crusades historians who work primarily from European sources, goodwill uh, in terms of using Arabic sources. Um, But um, very few Crusader historians had been uh, uh, Arabists, and even when they did know some Arabic, they, they, I don't think, were... Uh, equipped to to handle the rather sophisticated uh, historiographical traditions of the Islamic world, um, and you know the what I alluded to the sort of craftiness of of authors like Osama, but also many others as well. Um, you know, the, to get into the the worldview of of our um, medieval Arabic authors, um, and you know, so you might find some translated Arabic texts. Uh, uh, or quotations or references to them popping up, but um, no real engagement. So um, I started doing this, and um, uh, I quickly uh, came across the work of other scholars. It became clear that, you know, as usual, I was not the first to think of this, and there had been um, many brilliant uh, uh, historians before me who had tried to do similar things. Um, I, I think the most famous book is uh, um, uh, um, Uh, The Crusades Through Arab Eyes by Amin Malouf. Of course, it's a very readable readable book. I read it um, um, early on in my career. It's, of course, not a work of history per se in the sense that he's a a journalist, um, and he's also very uncritical of the sources in the way that I wanted to be. He sort of more or less just quoted a lot of uh, Arabic sources, but did so in a wonderfully readable way. And also, I think, was the first to open this question of perspective. You know, what what do these events, which everyone, which many educated people uh, claim to know about, what do these events look like, though, when you start looking at them from the other side? Um, And uh, around about that time um, that I began working on Usama, Carol Himlenbrand had produced her massive tome on the Crusades' Islamic Perspectives um and that is a magnificent book but it's I, I tend to see it as almost like a reference work it's encyclopedic but there's no real narrative so i wanted to produce something that was narrative in the way that Hillebrand's work wasn't and also um uh sort of had historical chops in the way that Malou's, uh work didn't either uh and also readable Right? Uh, that wasn't just for other professors, but, uh, but might be readable by people who, who would be interested in the Crusades or interested in Islamic history but wanted to see where the two met. So that was the idea anyway, um, the pitch, if you like. When I came down, down to actually writing it, what I realized um, was that um, um, there are uh, definite disadvantages. There are aspects of the Crusades that simply don't get mentioned by our Islamic sources. So whole stories, whole, whole famous episodes from European sources, whole issues, whole, uh, you know, subtopics simply are irrelevant um, from the point of view of Islamic history. And at first that was disappointing to me because I wanted to write about such things. But, uh, but then I realized, actually, this is really important. Um, that is important to the study of the Crusades that we realize that not all participants were um, uh, held, the same, um, uh, held to the same hot-button issues uh, uh, that we tend to think. We are, our, the, the field of crusade studies is so powerfully shaped by more or less one or two narratives written from a European perspective um, that we forget that um, for many of the participants— um, some of those issues were utter, utterly irrelevant. Um, uh, so it does mean that you know there are uh, from for people used to the traditional story of the Crusades, there are blank spots in my in my book. Um, but uh, I did my best to create to stitch together a a, a flowing narrative. Uh, and what I realized is that adopting the Islamic perspective it, it involved adopting two new frameworks: a uh, different chronological framework and a different. Geographical framework than I think most crusader historians were used to because, you know, the crusades are um, there is no such thing as as the crusades per se in Islamic history, just as actually um, medieval Christians didn't recognize them immediately as uh, they they didn't call them crusades. Um, What to Muslim sources, these events were just the sort of latest in a in a broader uptick of aggression from. Christian Europe in the 11th century. So this meant that, which began, I would say, in the middle of the, you know, in the 1050s or so. So it meant actually starting the story not with the First Crusade, which was 1099, but rather a generation before, and to explain uh, the place of Europe in the, um, uh, Europe and its peoples in the uh, uh, geographical and cultural imagination of medieval Muslims. And then also uh, the usual story of the Crusades ends in 1291, which is when the uh, Mamluks of Egypt and Syria ousted the last crusaders. But from the Islamic perspective, the story still goes on um, in Cyprus and in um, Eastern Europe, particularly under the Ottomans, who continued to um, fight um, Frankish invasions um, for much of the medieval period. So I had, to, I had a larger chronological uh, framework. And also a larger geographical focus in the sense that um, for Muslim authors, it was very clear all of these events uh, were tied to uh, Frankish or, you know, Christian European campaigns against Muslims throughout the Mediterranean. It wasn't just about the Holy Land uh, or Syria, but really on all shores. So uh, Al-Andalus, Spain and Portugal, of course, but also North Africa, um, Sicily. Um, the Mediterranean islands, Turkey, as well as um, uh, the Eastern Mediterranean. So the book is, um, you get a little motion sick, I think. <laughs> you know, you're sort of zipping around from one end of the Mediterranean to the, to the other. But I, I wanted to convey this sort of almost global um, uh, threat that uh, the Franks seemed to pose for a brief time um, to um, the Muslims of the Mediterranean. Um, so that was my that was my challenge um, and um, sort of my take home point uh, as I began to grapple with uh, what an Islamic perspective on the Crusades really was.
0: Paul, one of the other things I think you do really well in the book, and this this might be more in relation to kind of a, a popular conception of what the Crusades were, rather than kind of a, even a historical tradition, but. Um, I think one, there's this assumption that the Crusades were Christians versus Muslims and you complicate this idea of who the Muslims were and the kind of uh, intra-connections and uh, disputes that were going on Um, and also this idea that uh, uh, kind of a a holy war from a Muslim perspective, this idea of jihad was kind of the key motivating factor Uh, and you also kind of demonstrate how this – this kind of conceptual category was used strategically at different times and places and ignored in other times and places. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, who, who the Muslims were in this – or at least in a contemporary imagination of the Crusades and where jihad as a uh, idea fits in there?
1: Uh, sure. Um, I actually had in the back of my head um, while, while writing this um, – the way in which holy war was written about, um, from, um, by crusades historians, um, and religious motivations for these, for the crusades. I think one of the great, um, historiographical or parad- paradigm shifts in the study of the crusades from a Western European perspective, um, has then has been that by, um, Jonathan Riley Smith and his students, um, who have, um, encouraged, uh, us all to treat religion seriously. Those of us who study the Crusades, I think, for a large part of the early twentieth century and early and mid twentieth century, people were uncomfortable and therefore couldn't believe that crusaders would um, engage in acts of violence uh, and what have you for religious purposes. It didn't. It didn't compute. Uh, it seemed unbelievable. So, historical materialists, of course, had to find economic reasons um, for explaining the Crusades. Um, that or demographic reasons or um, uh, things like that. You know, famously, one, one theory was, uh, well, it tended to be um, the the youngest sons of, uh, of families from Europe because the eldest sons had inherited lands in Europe, so the youngest sons had to go make it big in the East to, uh, to make their fortune. Um, in fact, Riley Smith did the actual hard work, uh, and his students, uh, I should give credit, um, of doing the actual hard work of, you know, Counting up the Crusaders and find you know finding out their family histories and uh, um, actually reading the motives that they themselves gave in um, in documents that they left um, behind, and uh, it turns out that actually it was economically financially speaking ruinous to go on crusades. Almost no one made made big money out of it, um, and that um, uh, far from it being a, a story about let's say younger sons. Um, Whole whole aristocratic lineages went altogether, so there had to be something besides these material motives or demographic motives for for going for going on crusade. And uh, Riley Smith said, "Well, why don't we just take these medieval people at at their word? Why don't we believe them when they say when they are able to somehow square being good Christians with act, with killing Muslims, with with going on a kind of armed pilgrimage? What if, you know? What if we just try and understand that and get into the head of um, medieval beliefs about holy war. So that's, that's the general trend over the 20th century, I would say, uh, of how crusade historians have taken holy war. And what was interesting to me is that the, um, the, uh, the courtesy was never extended to understanding Muslims and their motivations. That I think for a lot of crusades historians, well, Muslims, they're just religious and they're always going to be motivated by, by religion. And so it was actually the opposite story that I was interested in. How can we understand the interplay of all of these motives—religious, uh, and I'm using the, the term religious very clumsily here—I realize uh, for shorthand—but um, um, religious motives with material, more material motives with cultural motives, uh, or um, um, or other social pressures which um, uh, encourage them to go uh, fight the Franks and. Um, uh, for me, what was immediately apparent from the sources was that jihad or the language of jihad, the discourse of holy war in the in the uh, Muslim sources was mm, modular. It was it varied from time to time and was used um, for, uh, very um, um, contingently um, by specific Muslims at specific times, um, usually to. Um, garner support from their superiors or to mobilize um, the populace. And so it was important to me to make that point um, uh, that, you know, jihad was not the default mode of Muslims when confronted with um, a Christian threat, but also that there were other ways in which the vast spectrum of medieval Muslims in all their wonderful variety responded to to the challenges of uh, a Frankish invasion. Sometimes they went to war. Most of the time they didn't. Mo- that is for most Muslims, you know, um, that there was also a time of uh, 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 theological debate, cultural exchange, cultural conflicts, economic connections. Um, most Muslims of the Middle East didn't even, never even saw a Frank. Um, uh, and we forget that um, um, uh, because of, I think, the perspective of our sources. So I wanted, to, I wanted to, to show to readers that it wasn't just a story of military conflict, that there were other things happening during the period of the Crusades, which the coming of the Franks sort of either initiated or augmented, um, you know, trends that were already in place.
0: Now, Paul, I'm, I want to shift gears... For a moment, if I could, because I doubt there's many authors that I'll interview that have had this opportunity. But you, your book was made into an audiobook, and you had a very, <laughs> yes. you had a very central role in making this happen. Um, so, I mean, just for us future authors and uh, audiobook uh, speakers. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about that experience uh, as a <laughs> academic making this very popular audiobook? Sure. I have a
1: I'm I'm obsessed with the um, material conditions of producing knowledge in our in our world. <laughs> uh, I find it fascinating and, and it's a bit like you know when you get invited to the kitchen to see how the sausages are made. You know, sometimes you regret it. <laughs> You'd rather just enjoy the sausages. But, um, uh, yes, so um, what happens with the, so, yes, my book is available on audible.com, uh, which is owned – a subsidiary owned by um, amazon.com. And they – Amazon had bought the rights to the, uh, the uh, audiobook rights uh, for, for my book and had uh, asked if um, – um, well, I had asked about the scheduling of it, and they said, well, it, it all depends on when we can find an, uh, an actor, a voice actor, to do it. And the, uh, there was a sort of a pause, and the uh, producer said, utterly knowingly, I'm sure, said, to, said, unless you'd like to do it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so um, that's how I got in. I, I happened to be on leave. I thought it would be a lark and funny to do, um, and I'm always open to new to new experiences. Uh, so I agreed to do it. And uh, the the studios, the Audible studios, or some of them anyway, are just up in Newark, New Jersey. So not not so very far from New Jersey. Um, and, excuse me, not so very far from Philadelphia. Um, so I agreed to do it, and it was a very—it was a, an eye-opening experience. I just sort of thought you'd sit in a in a recording room, uh, sort of like a podcast, and just sort of talk into a microphone. Um, but it was in fact a very active experience of uh, uh, you know controlling your voice, uh, reading carefully. Um, uh, I think any one of us who's, who's given a talk at a conference, you know, at Mesa or uh, the AAR. Uh, you know, we know when we read out loud, we slur or we say um or ah or we have ticks of some kind. And those are absolutely not allowed <laughs> uh, in an audiobook. So there are these very highly trained people who I now worship, uh, sound engineers, uh, who are able to um, fix those but also to coach you on how to, you know, how to survive the, uh, the process. So I wound up taking two weeks, um, uh, nine to four every day. Um, but uh, but we got it done. And uh, it was uh, an eye-opening experience, and I would say generally a positive one, and I would encourage uh, anyone who has the opportunity to do it, and obviously you find another audience, but also it taught me something about um, the history of audiobooks, uh, which were originally, they come out of the Books on Tape um, institution, which is originally designed for the uh, visually impaired. And I have a lot of maps in my book. In fact, there's one, one section of the book where I sort of lean on this old Islamic sieve uh, um, you know, parlor trick where, uh, we talk about Idrisi's map, which I think a lot of us do when we teach this course, uh, the upside, so-called upside down map of the world. And as a very, you know, I walk the reader through the map and it's a very visual technique. And I realized as I was reading, as I was doing the audible part of it, that, ah, this is the sort of thing that, you know, um, uh, is going to be a challenge for visually impaired uh, listeners. And it made me think about the other aspects, visual aspects of books that are not treated with a, a walkthrough, as it were. And I, I, uh, my sound engineer told me that, in fact, um, in many books, in many books on tape and on many audiobooks, there are um, now audio descriptions of plates and of maps and so on. So uh, it made me think about how to write um, uh, for the future, that if, uh, you know, to include these sorts of uh, uh, descriptions um, um, when, when advisable, uh, keeping in mind that we have diverse audiences. So that was an educational experience for me.
0: That's a good segue, too, into uh, asking you about the types of things you're you're working on now and perhaps some projects we could uh, hopefully see in print and, and hear in audio in the future.
1: <laughs> I don't know about audio, but um, the um, – uh, sure i well you know the, there's a there's the old truism about grad school, which is that there's nothing like uh writing a dissertation or in this case a book about something to make you sick to death of it right <laughs> you know? um, uh you know some of my best friends in cinema studies hate movies you know uh, <laughs> um but uh uh i so i'm i'm you I'm of two minds about writing about the Crusades uh, anymore but um I think I have something else uh, a few other uh, points to make, and one is a uh, one about the the broader context of the of Eurasia in the late Middle Ages. I sort of moved chronologically across the Middle Ages. It seems like in my career, so I'm moving a little forward uh, from the classic period of the Crusades. I'm working on. I'm interested in this uh, this fellow named uh, Johannes Schultzberger, who was a German teenager who was captured by the Turks in 1396, and. Um, uh, became the uh, personal attendant of the Ottoman Sultan Bayezid, and uh, Bayezid was in turn captured, uh, defeated in battle uh, by uh, Tamerlane by Timur, and uh, Schiltberger became the personal attendant of Tamerlane and traveled around the Middle East, Central Asia, Caucasus, um, and uh, and um, uh, Iran, and eventually uh, was handed down to various Timurid rulers. And eventually made his way back through Constantinople to uh, up the Danube, back to Germany, um, where he became a kind of banter, you know, sort of bureaucrat for uh, uh, for the um, Duke of Bavaria in Munich, and wrote memoirs. And uh, so he was away for thirty years in the service of Muslim uh, Muslim rulers. And that sounds very exciting. It's a bit like Marco Polo. You know, when you tell the story, it sounds very exciting to someone over a pint or whatever. But when you actually <laughs> sit down and read it, it's actually kind of dull. <laughs> and that's the sad truth about Schultberger's memoirs. Um, they are a bit dull. So what I'm using his life and his sort of uh, adventures as a, um, you know, as a, as a Virgil or a Cicero, a kind of human guide through how Eurasia worked and how interconnected it was at the close of the Middle Ages, in an attempt to sort of resurrect this world in which, indeed, a Christian teenager could become personal attendant to, um, um, that is, a German Christian teenager could become the personal attendant of a Central Asian warlord uh, from, uh, you know, Bukhara. Um, And uh, uh, to sort of um, uh, assess what that world was like, what we've lost uh, and what we've gained uh, in, in 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 the the time after, and that's intended for um, a, a general audience, um, uh, but again, uh, an audience more more like the uh, my Race for paradise audience that is a uh, the, the slightly mythical or Sasquatch like uh, educated <laughs> non specialist. <you know? laughs> uh, so that's the plan um, for um, for my next project, and I'm enjoying it very much. Um, I'm motivated mostly. Uh, by my uh, immense uh, ignorance uh, to, uh, to, to move on to new, to new subjects. So um, this is not to say that having written a book, I'm, I've become an expert. But I, when I'm in the process of writing books, I, I am aware of how little I know about other things. So that, that tends to attract me to new fields and new, new time periods. So, so I'm learning a lot of uh, medieval German uh, and other, other things that I didn't know I'd have to know about and doing uh, <laughs> it very much.
0: Great. Well, Paul, good luck on that, and thank you for writing this wonderful book and making the time to talk about
1: it. It's a very great pleasure. Thanks very much for having me on the
0: podcast. That was my conversation with Paul Cobb about his great new book, The Race for Paradise, An Islamic History of the Crusades, published with Oxford University Press in 2014. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.